Futurized goes beneath the trends, tracking the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. Join me, futurist Trun Arne Unheim, PhD author, investor, and serial entrepreneur, as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, or the future of work. I'm a research scholar in global systemic risk, innovation, and policy at Stanford University. On Futurized, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org slash episodes. I am the co-author of Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operation and the author of Health Tech Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware and Mindset, Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial failure and of leadership from below how the internet generation redefines the workplace for an overview you can go to trondenheim.com books at this stage futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors and to check them out go to futurized.org sponsors if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by me, including how to book me for keynote speeches, please go to futurist.org slash store. We'll consider all brands that have demonstrably positive contributions to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurist.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. Please also leave a positive review on iTunes. Thanks so much. Let's be... And you... Claude, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Very well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to talk about this uh, very daunting and uh, interesting and complex subject of carbon removal and the challenges associated with it. Uh, Claude, first of all, you are a chemical engineer, which I'm sure comes in handy with with, uh, this question. You got your degree from the University of Laval in Quebec, and you're a serial startup founder. You've done this several times, and a tech executive also worked in larger companies. And now you're building the CO2 marketplace with the Canadian scale-up company Svante. Um, how did you get into this business, Claude? You get called in one day by investors, and they draft you to Vancouver. So, <laughs> no, I've been in the business long <laughs> enough that uh, people have known me and. I started my career in the, the late uh, 1980s and worked for a company called Lavalin, which was an engineering construction company. And I got involved in in developing technology from the lab into commercial operations. So I spent all my career basically working in in developing the innovation process from ID, from lab to commercial, and also building large uh, you know manufacturing plants and minings and metals. So. Well, I was involved in 1990 with um, a first uh, company called um, Avistor at the time where we were uh, developing the first metallic lithium polymer battery, all solid state batteries for electric vehicle and hybrid vehicles. So 
we took I took this technology from a size of a stamp to um, a size of a complete battery pack into a, a GM and Ford uh, electric vehicle in the mid 1990s. So we were quite ahead of our time <laughs> in doing it. Um, the company is still running today, and and some of the technology being used in that uh, process is being used today in carbon capture. So there's a great deal of similarity in the process and manufacturing process between the two. So. But you, you've also been uh, been uh, on, on the investment side of companies, right? So you, you work on uh, your operator, but also you've been involved in other, on the other side? Yeah, I also work on the other spectrum of um, the innovation process, which is uh, deploying large capital investment uh, projects. So working, I went back to SNC-Lavalin at the time and I was running the uh, the North American operation for the mines and metals. So, so we had four thousand people doing engineering construction projects in Abu Dhabi with aluminum smelters and in building plants in Chile, uh, copper plant, and and so far. So I understand what it takes to to get a major project uh, approved by the financial sector and be able to deploy a large capital project in, in the field. So it's coming quite handy and what we have to do in front of us for the, the carbon capture market. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll talk about uh, you know the player that you choose to, uh, to work with in a second, but I, I just wanted to maybe uh, have you describe the field a little bit briefly, just for people who may not, uh, you know, uh, work on this day to day. We they obviously read about it in the in the paper and and uh, you know reflect around the climate situation. But let's talk about some of the specifics. So carbon removal. Um, first of all, when would you say that this became a realistic technological prospect. How long have you have we been having, I guess, this first generation technology for carbon carbon removal? Well the technology of removing CO2 from uh, from natural gas or methane or even removing CO2 from post combustion has been around for more than 85 years with a very conventional technology called a, a solvent or liquid uh, system amine system. But, um, you know, everything started about 125 years ago um, when the scientist called Svante Arrhenius, and hence the name of, of our company today, uh, uh, saw the correlation between the CO2 going in the atmosphere from man-made um, with the temperature of, uh, of Earth going, um, going up. So, But at the same time, we were, um, you know, generating more and more rubbish in our home so because we could smell and, and see the... Uh, the rubbish, uh, somebody developed a waste management industry. But we didn't do anything with CO2 because, you know, nobody could see or smell the CO2. So nature has been there to manage the carbon since that uh, 125 years ago. So the imbalance of nature is about one part per million and now going to two parts per million. That's about, and in terms of numbers, seven to now 18 gigaton of CO2 going in the atmosphere every day every year. And we have a total emission of about 40 gigaton uh, all industries, uh, automotive and, and industri industrial sector, power generation and the like. So it is becoming now a very daunting number and nature cannot cope anymore with the excess CO2 going in the atmosphere. So we need to do two things. We need first to stop emitting more CO2 in the atmosphere. So everybody calls this now net zero. So they want to take the 40 gigaton and bring it down to zero. Yes, that's one task. So, and the second one is to remove the CO2 that has been accumulating in the atmosphere 
and the legacy of the industrial age for the last 125 years. It's called carbon removal. So removing CO2 from the atmosphere. So my industry is called carbon capture and removal. Point source, carbon capture. Carbon removal is perceived as now called carbon dioxide removal. So direct air capture is the one that people talk about the most. But there's also nature-based in other ways of, of removing the CO2 from the atmosphere than engineering solutions. So we need to provide now an engineering solution to this problem. So the net zero pledge of going to 40 gigaton basically means that we need to deploy more renewable than we ever did. We need to go in electrification of the transport industry with more EV than we've ever seen. And you need also to deploy the energy efficiency. So carbon capture comes into play, but for about 20% of the task that needs to be done to get to net zero. So for $2 trillion, you will get 20% of the CO2 reduction when the rest of the net zero pledge is $120 million trillion. So it is a big number that we need to all spend globally. So it's now becoming a necessity to manage carbon. Not a nice to have, but now a necessity because we're too late in the process and it's going to take a lot of effort to deploy all of the other solutions. It's not one or the other, it's all of the above on steroids. Yes, Claude, I wanted to ask you about this. It's maybe not one or the other, but the to in order to reach meaningful scale for carbon capture utilization and removal you had published some numbers recently that i was looking at and and where you you wrote that the the world needs to have a 10,000 capture plants running over the next 30 years which amounts to two plants a week in the next decade and then you there was a cost of approximately 250 million per plant that you had put in there. How realistic is this kind of a development? And and why why were you that concrete? Uh, I mean, uh, so you just crunched the numbers. So with existing technology, I'm assuming this is what it would take. Well, I, that seems to me <laughs> impossible. Well, it, it sounds impossible, uh, but I went backward. I said, okay, if we if the task now is to go and 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 do it about. 10, 10 gigaton of CO2 removal out of the 40 that other people will have to take care of. What does it mean? And so it's about 10,000 plant of a million ton. That's what 10 gigaton looks. And I said, what industry today has deployed that amount of capital in such a short time? Yes. So I, I looked at the airline industry and I said, okay, how many Airbus and Boeing do we have up in the air in the fleet? 25,000. The cost of an Airbus and Boeing is about $300 million. So, okay, about the same investment as a carbon capture plant. So the industry in the last 25 years was able to develop the airline industry with Airbus and Boeing dominating the market in building um, commercial aircraft. Now, the parallel I'm making is this is the same one we need to do with carbon capture. Now, how many people, um, how many companies are basically providing engine to the airline industry? which is what you need to lift off the, the, the aircraft. Well, there's three companies, GE, Pratt & Whitney, and Rolls-Royce. I want to be the GE of the carbon capture space by providing the, 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 the active material or the filter that's going to be able to do this job for carbon removal and carbon capture. That's the task that I'm telling my team to work on. 
And there will be other companies providing cryogenic technology, liquid solvent, other, other types of, of, of technology or solution to do the carbon capture and removal. But that industry as itself has to be at that scale. So two plants, yeah, I, I that's basically just a matter yeah. of doing it. So how realistic is it? So today we have 40 plants worldwide that took probably 50 years to get there. So there was no serious willingness of doing it. So now we have the technology to do this. We have the, the, the need because it's now a necessity to do it. And in, in North America, particularly in the U.S., we now have a way to monetize the CO2 because that's the key to all this. Who's going to pay for it? And that monetization is called a tax credit called 45Q that the U.S. government has put, to, has put under the Trump administration at $50 per ton. And with the IRA recently, it was bumped up to $85 per ton. So that's good enough to get all of these projects going because there's enough money to pay for carbon capture, the financial sector to make a return on investment, the transport and the storage guys to be able to get money into it. So now it, it is becoming a business. But we need to get going and we need to get going at a rate that's going to escalate quickly to zero from zero plant last year to probably 450 plants by the end of 2030 and escalating quickly to more than 10,000 of these plants if we want to reach the gigaton level within the next 10 years. So one thing that's, I don't know if it's good or bad, but uh, you know some technologies do improve over time. Admittedly, if you are going to take your airline example, the technology hasn't improved enormously right over these years. So the scale has improved, but the planes are flying pretty much at the same speed as they as they were initially. Uh, there are obviously a, you know a lot of technological advances during during this period in the airline industry. I'm not saying that, but are you not? Uh, counting in any kind of technology improvements uh, during this time, or is your point that we just need to re reach the scale uh, and, and realistically it's going to happen with sort of the technologies that are kind of frozen in 2022? Well, um, I, I believe technology evolution and learning curve happens um, when, as the more you make, the more you improve your costs. And I think the example I can give you is when Intel started 50 years ago, they were making chipsets and, and the chips now are basically more powerful than ever. And then the cost has gone down and same thing with solar, same thing with wind. So all of it will go through the same learning curve and being a, you know, if you, if you have a path of a technology path of a, of a solid versus a liquid solution or cryogenic, you have a different learning curve faster or lower to do these things, but this will happen. And it will reduce the cost, but we don't need this. We don't need a breakthrough to get the industry going. We need to get going with what we have now. And that's what um, the CCS market is, but it's an emerging phase, you know, and then the first mover, um, you know, uh, basically um, are require incentives to get going the same way the wind and solar did for the last 20 years. Or let me say no. They are still getting the subsidies <laughs> to basically be economical today. So, um, so that that needs to be happen, and that's what forty five Q is about with eighty five dollar per ton to get the industry going. Could you give me uh, just a story of of Svante? Because the startup itself started in in a small scale, I guess, all the way back in two thousand and seven, and has been uh, at least for some of 
part of that period, government supported by the government of Canada, and I believe you got a, a recent a pretty big grant. But you, you've also now gotten to a, a Series D, so you have a, a fairly big investment there with venture dollars. Um, how, how did uh, Svanta's evolution look like, and, and where are you positioned right now? Well, the company started from an idea of using uh, a novel way of making uh, uh, the process of separating uh, gases and um, and the previous company was doing it and trying to separate hydrogen from syngas to go into uh, fuel cell in the time where um, people were trying to make fuel cell into vehicle. Um, so that technology um, evolution took place uh, in, in the spinoff of it that was called Adventus and we rebranded it under Svante, focusing only on CO2 uh, and nitrogen separation. So the novelty of what uh, we do is we take a sorbent material, a solid that's a nanomaterial, and it's uh, selectively as pores to attract, to keep the CO2 and let the nitrogen go. So we, we put this powder on a, on a composite layer and we create a filter and therefore we're able to do the catch and release of the CO2 with that uh, filter with a, a contactor that we've developed in less than a minute. So that cycle of catching and releasing the CO2 takes less than a minute when normal technology in solid sorbent would take hours. So we're reducing the cost of the contactor and the filters. So that was the genesis of the of the of the, of the company, if you if you wish. So yeah. So so those were some researchers at the University of Calgary, I believe. So you licensed technology from them, and 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 it's the the CAF twenty uh, process is is using this uh, metal organic uh, process that you just described, and and there are nanomaterials uh, used as the solid absorbance of of the gases. Is that right? That's absolutely right. So we we took this uh, invention of this molecule uh, of MOF um, from Professor Chimisu at the University of Calgary, and and. And we basically work with him to develop a manufacturing process to make it at the tonnage level at very low cost. And once we've mastered this thing, we went to an industrial partner that can do it at scale uh, called BASF. It's a German uh, chemical company and BASF now is making tons of this material. So that's a breakthrough in the gas separation business uh, using MOF uh, at, at that volume and at cost uh, of material. But to do so as a startup, you know, we're, we're trying to tackle um, a problem humanity needs to fix, but with the means of a startup. <laughs> it's quite demanding. So so we, we basically funded the company six years, six months at a time, uh, raising money enough for six months to do a milestone demonstration and the like. So, you know, we limp our way through over the last five years of raising about $200 million, um, six months at a time to be able to deliver the, 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 the technology demonstration. And now what I'm, what I'm in a phase now is to basically scale and develop a business that we can scale at gigaton scale to match the need of these two plants a week. So, we're actually building now, as we speak, a manufacturing facility to make the filters capable of equipping every year 10 plants a year of a million ton. Remember, the world needs at least 100 a year. We have a plant factory number one of 10 plants a year, which costing about $70 million without a purchase order because the market will only move with companies of our size if they see manufacturing available and they see that the product is done at scale. So we're now closing very shortly, we'll be announcing a Series E financing of multi-million dollar 
hundreds of millions of dollars to be able to implement the, the business uh, plan that we have forward to be a dominant player in that industry. You know, these are interesting uh, uh, observations here. <laughs> sort of trying to solve humanity's biggest current problem uh, on on startup dollars. It doesn't seem to me like this is the plan humanity should have for carbon uh, capture, if you ask me, the ideal case. But, uh, but I guess, uh, uh, you know, founding milestone after milestone uh, is, is also a way to do it. But uh, if, if someone had come to you, uh, you know, a while back before you got into this business, this madness, I guess, of, of, of kind of scaling, hyperscaling something that's never been done, essentially on a shoestring, because I know you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars and, and you, you already have, uh, you know, uh, over a hundred million dollars, but I know manufacturing at that scale can't be cheap. And there are no corporate companies uh, that operate like this, right? That, you know, they, if they were running a mega project, they would have been spending a, a billion dollars yeah. right now. Yeah, so we have the agility and the speed of doing things that a large company cannot do. But uh, I must say that over the last, uh, I would say, 24 months, I've seen a major shift in the understanding of the world of what needs to be done, both from the, the politics side, the politician side, from the financial market and from industry. So you need the three of them to now dance together, yes? So um, the financial market took the lead of really pushing the ESG um, agenda and into it quantifying what it costs to be net zero. So when you have now the financial market saying it's going to cost $120 trillion to do net zero, and then, and then I come in and says, well, carbon capture is $2 trillion, I look like a bargain, yes? <laughs> like before it was not the case. So 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 I think this is helping. And, and also the the monetization, the business model that allows everyone to manage the, the carbon um, is now becoming um, more accepted by everyone. So I, I'm... You know, I was in the in the in the EV batteries um, in mid 1990. We were like 35 years ahead of our time. Uh, and today, um, I think what the difference with uh, carbon capture today to compare to where we were with batteries in the 1990s is that we have all the external factor aligning themselves to um, uh, to basically make this a reality. So, um, so I'm very very positive about the future of deployment of CCS. So there are a lot of critics of these approaches as well, obviously. One, one of them, you know, generally being uh, a good part of the environmental movement that feels like this is uh, kind of a stopgap measure and it's continuing the reign of the energy companies that continues essentially their business model. What do you say to that kind of critique? Well, um, I think this is becoming from the fact that every cause needs an enemy to promote its cause. Yes. And the renewable industry needed a cause. Um, and they basically used the oil and gas as the enemy and were able to create the awareness of using renewable energy for our, our power generation. Mission accomplished. Thank you. Great. Now we need, we need to change the narrative. It is not, and then rightly so, I think the carbon capture was associated earlier into putting a, at the end of a coal power plant. So people associated the coal power plant 
with the um, carbon capture, which is not the case. So our focus is to work on removing CO2 and making cement, which has nothing to do with the oil and gas industry. It's about the hydrogen economy that people look for to substitute a carbon fuel with an hydrogen fuel. But the cheapest way to make hydrogen today is from natural gas, but it emits CO2. So if you capture the CO2, you now have what people refer to as blue hydrogen. It's about removing CO2 from a pulp and paper plant, which at the same time is doing carbon removal because that CO2 came from the biomass of photosynthesis. And it's about direct air capture application. So all of these things are not there to sustain necessarily the oil and gas industry without any movement or transition. It is there to address the fundamental needs of product and services that we need to continue growing our economy with the population growing up every year. The other question, you know, you, you you talk about business model, but some people would say that carbon capture or carbon capture is a bad business model in the sense that, you know, apart from the obvious thing, you know, you're capturing something we need to capture, you're not creating anything in the process. Uh, so the utilization part was, you know, introduced as an answer to that question. What are uh, some of the ways that one can utilize carbon, if if at all? Well, there is a few ways you can use CO2, but you have to remember chemically CO2 is the, a stable product of the degradation of a, of a chemical reaction. So it's a byproduct that is very, very stable. So if you want to reuse CO2, you need to recombine it if you want to make fuel with hydrogen, which costs a lot of energy. So why, why go through this source of carbon to make um, fuel if you have a, a cheaper way of doing it? So uh, I think people are, are basically, when you buy a mattress now, you buy it on Amazon, yes, it's in a small box. And then you open up, you, if you make the mistake of opening that up in your garage, like I did the first time, you end up having a double bed in your garage that you saw in a small box. So the reason why you can compress this mattress is because you have a chain of, of carbon that is coming from multiple source of CO2 being put in the process to make this. But the consumption of it is like a few 10 million tons of CO2 worldwide. So far away from the gigaton or the billions of tons of CO2 we need to do so. So today, the only way I see to be able to do this job quickly in the next 30 years is to put the carbon back where it came from, which is basically storing CO2. And it sounds drastic, but it's not that complicated. You, 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 you drink uh, fuzzy water. Yes. You buy now a bottle of water. Sure. You, you, you basically push CO2 into it and you make bubbly water. Yes. Well, that's the same thing people do three kilometers down. They push CO2 into a water reservoir, not the water we consume the water, but three kilometers down. And then in that saline reservoir, there is some salt and that salt reacts with the CO2 and creates a mineral that stays in there. So you're locking the CO2 there for thousands of years. So that's where it came from. That's where it needs to go back. This is a $10, $20 per ton cost to put it back and, and capturing it 50. So a society can afford this thing. Well, the same way you think it's a waste material, the, the rubbish that people collect in your home every, every week, they go to a waste management site. Yes. Are, they, are we recycling all the material? Probably not in the first 75 years. Yes. Today, what fraction of the material of, of the of the garbage goes and is being recycled? A very small amount. It's the same thing. Got it. 
Well, let's move to the future outlook. Uh, you, you have talked about the, the need to produce uh, 10,000 factories and, and the scaling challenge in that in and of itself. So one thing is, you know, we might be able to afford it, but can we actually do it? If you look at the realistic path, so that this decade uh, and roll a couple of decades ahead, uh, I, I know the, the big date, you know, in the UN uh, climate change uh, reporting is 2050. Then there's sort of another interesting point at towards the end of the century where we, we have to drastically have reduced our emissions. What are what is likely to happen in in your mind? You you seem optimistic. You think the governments perhaps mostly will find the money and that perhaps will tax the large oil companies and, and other companies, industrial companies, heavy emitters, uh, and, and put in place some some amount of incentive and uh, I guess a mixture of carrot and stick to get this to happen at the speed you are suggesting, or do you think it's going to go, unfortunately, slower? Well, um, I actually, when I look at the numbers, I worry more about um, getting to net zero, reducing 40 gigaton down to zero. I, I think this is a very, very ambitious plan. It, it's okay to have this goal, but it's going to be a challenge. The reality, we need to stop the CO2 going in the atmosphere first. So that's 18 gigaton. It's, it's about half of it. So if we do half of that, we've done pretty good. Yes. And then eventually it'll take more time to reduce this thing down to zero and remove the CO2 in the atmosphere and, and, and all of it. So when you look at the contribution of the various solution to do this, I worry about the deployment of solar and, and wind. You know, people think they've seen wind and solar. They haven't seen the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> so that's going to require trillions and trillions of dollars. We've spent $4 trillion in the last 10 years to get 0.1% of the power generation on the renewable. We're talking about $2 trillion here for carbon capture for 20% of the CO2. So this is the one that gives you the more bang for your buck and CCS. So I'm, I'm putting my money and my effort on this one. I'm not saying renewable cannot be done. It has to be done. We have to do this. Yes, we have to do electric vehicle the same way. But those industries will take time because there's a lot of resistance and this. But it's not sexy to do carbon capture. Nobody talks about this because nobody will ever seen a cement factory in its life. Most of it. Yes, most of it will never see a carbon capture plant. You cannot touch like you have an electric vehicle or, or see a windmill turning. But this will happen. You need just a handful of companies and technology providers to get the job done. And if the financial market is supporting this, it will happen. It will happen. Claude, can we talk about that aspect for a second? Because with other technologies, you know, you mentioned wind and solar, but uh, both wind and solar actually, and even hydropower, all of them have had social movements at one moment or another against them because the infrastructure is either ugly or perceived to be um, invading natural uh, habitats, destroying uh, aesthetic value. Um, is there not that kind of concern of yours? You, you said right now the opposite is the problem. Nobody sees a carbon capture facility, but that's when there's 40 of them hidden away and tiny little demo factories. What will this animal look like when these 10,000 factories go up? So is there a movement to build uh, cement factories? Is there a movement against building a steel plant? 
Is there a movement in building a chemical plant to make the product we need? Not as much, yes, as what you would think so. So this is an add-on end of the pipe into an existing infrastructure, industrial infrastructure. So I, you know, I, I think it's going to go under the radar of most people. The only thing that people will debate and see in their backyard is when somebody puts a pipeline or somebody decides to do a CO2 hubs, but those CO2 hubs will be offshore or close to area where there's industrial activity. So they won't necessarily see it, but the pipeline, they may see it. So is there a movement against pipeline in general? Yes, but you know, that's something we'll have to tackle. Mm -hmm. um, lastly, I want to just ask you a little uh, bit about the ecosystem around you. Uh, I mean, for Svanta, right, I understand you are collaborating with one of the few other ones, Climeworks, uh, uh, the startup that has a facility famously in on Iceland, and, and you have a pilot with Chevron. Who who are the main players, and and why would you collaborate with other startups uh, in this endeavor um, if you are direct competitors? Well, we're not direct competitors; we're we're partners. So, in the sense, first of all, to me, the the people ask me, "What's your competition?" I reply, "It's doing nothing." Inertia. So, once you decide to do carbon capture, there's ten thousand plant to deploy. Every time there's one being built, bravo. I don't care which technology and which company does it. That's, a, that's just a step in the right direction. That being said, we quickly identified that direct air capture would be a solution that we need to have in our arsenal of solution. And looked around at the time and saw that Climeworks had a similar culture and similar um, drive to get the direct air capture um, demonstrated. So. We offer our help to help them uh, lower their costs by providing the filter that allows them to reduce the cost on their on their target to reduce um, and deploy this thing at gigaton scale. So we are complementary to Climeworks. We don't do the contactor. We don't do the plant buildup. We simply supply the filters to them. Um, and we're we're working also in partnership with, let's say, a, a major engineering construction company called Qit. And where they're probably the leading company today in the United States in building carbon capture plant. But they're also working with companies who offer com alternative um, liquid solvent systems. And you know what? Every time they build a car carbon capture plant, they went, they go to the learning curve of building one. And 90% of the plant is similar to our, to the capture plant we would build because the contactor is the difference we have liquid versus solid, but the rest of the balance of plant, 90% is very similar. So they go down the learning curve of building more and more. So you see the partnering aspect of it. And then the, the oil and gas has been working with us uh, because they want to be part of the solution, not the problem. And when you think through who can safely store CO2 on the ground, well, that knowledge and that expertise lies within the oil and gas industry. Is it going to be the oil and gas themselves doing it? or individuals who work there who are spinning off into uh, pure play companies and doing carbon storage, probably a mixture of both, but that industry has the knowledge to safely store the CO2 at, at gigaton scale. So we're partnering with all of these things. We have three platform of partnership. One, to make our product like BSF, partnering with us in making a, a sub-component of our filter. 
channel to market partner like like Qit and we have other partners around the world we work with. And third, what I call the, uh, the strategic account or the major um, companies who have basically a need to decarbonize their industry and 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 the means to store the CO2 in the case of the oil and gas. So so we're managing all of this. So when somebody works with Zvante, they realize quickly that it's not just about the technology. It's about the ecosystem being built and the partnership to scale at gigaton scale. It's a it's a fascinating endeavor that you have uh, put a, a ahead of yourself, Claude. It's it sounds somewhat different from any other business. I I want to ask you again when you said yes to this. Did you realize what kind of a job? I mean, it's it's beyond kind of herding cats here. You are you're, you're arguing the case in front of you know multilateral fora. Essentially, you become the poster child. So you know if something goes wrong, you know humanity at the moment has what uh, three to four serious players who are trying to do this. That's a lot of responsibility on your shoulder. It's a lot of different stakeholders. How do you sleep at night with that kind of responsibility? Well, I, I don't take this that seriously. The way the, it sounds very serious the way you're explaining it. <laughs> I'm trying to have fun out of it, and I'm trying to build a team that basically can survive and through the time. And you know, it's uh, I, I see business as a, a game in a, in a certain way. I don't want to sound this like it's a light way, but it, you need to stay in the game. Yes, not win the game because if you win the game, you lose because there's no more game. So if you want to stay in the game, you need to make sure that the industry is, is, is growing and partnership are there and people are there and you need to find your place into that ecosystem. So I like doing this. That's what I've done all my life. I've done it with new technology out of the lab and into bigger ones and I'm just having fun. I hope my, my team does it well. I'm glad to hear. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, on, on that note, Claude, I, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, it's, there's a definitely been a learning curve here for, for me. Uh, it's uh, hard to imagine all these types of activities and, and the numbers and, uh, and the scaling challenge, the manufacturing challenge is, is truly staggering. Thank you for coming on the show, explaining some of these things. And I hope uh, we can have you back. Uh, you know, Svante is going to be around. This is a long-term challenge. Totally. And thank you very much for uh, sending me an invitation. So always a pleasure. Great. You have just listened to another episode of the Futurized podcast with me, Trondarne Unheim, futurist scholar and author. If you are interested in my products or services, feel free to check out futurized.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of my books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership From Below. If you're interested in any or all of my projects, check out my website, trondundheim.com, which has links to other podcasts as well as my public appearances. Thank you. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.